It's wonderful to see you all here this morning. Yes, don't let the weather fool you. The Lord was gracious to me this morning and brought out the sunshine. So I'm hoping that's a a sign of spring. No more snow, hopefully. Um, I'm preaching again over the next couple months, and so hopefully I'll keep my job by the end of this year. Um, No one wants a pastor who always brings snow. Um, But it's wonderful to see you here this morning. I was thinking about that. I'm certainly ready for springtime. Um, I I started seeing some of the... uh, the flowers and the, the trees blooming, and it's just kind of getting me ready for the spring. But I've also seen with me and many, many others that the allergies have now come out with full force. And so uh, try to persevere as much as you can. Um, but uh, yes, as Pastor Joe mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. You know, the, uh, the Easter time of year, the Passion Week, always seems to kind of come quick on us each year, doesn't it? It's kind of a different type of thing than, say, Christmas time. Christmas time, there's usually some sort of big build-up. You know, you have calendars, and you, you, know, you pull out each day, and there's either some sort of chocolate or trinket. Kids are counting it down. Uh, you're going Christmas shopping. There's various parties. Uh, where, uh, as the time we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, it, it just kind of seems to come right up on us. Uh, it's already April. Uh, 2009 is in full force. And so, uh, which in a sense is a shame really because um, this time of year, the Passion Week, uh, Good Friday, um, and the Easter Sunday is, is the, uh, the jewel and the crown of Christianity. And, uh, and so I, I've been uh, blessed to be able to bring the word to you this morning. And, and I've been excited. Yes, as Pastor Joe uh, mentioned to you, uh, it is Palm Sunday. Um, but what is Palm Sunday? Why, why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? And I asked some of the students this morning to explain to me what Palm Sunday was, and I got various different answers. And I might, if I asked you guys, get various different answers from you as well. Um, some of you might say, well, it's, it's the Sunday before Christ died on the cross. Well, why do we celebrate that? It's just the, the week before. Um, some people might say, well, it's when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. But Jesus had entered in Jerusalem many times before that, and we, we don't celebrate those days. Um, but it is an important holiday to us. In fact, as, as Protestants, it's really one of the main four holidays we celebrate, three of which are this week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and then Christmas. And so it is important uh, to understand why we celebrate Palm Sunday. Um, you know, even I even asked a lady at the grocery store this week. I was excited. I told her that I was preaching on Palm Sunday. And she flat asked me, well, you know, I've been going to church, but I don't even really know what Palm Sunday is. And what, is, what are palms? What does that have to do with it? And so that's what we're going to look to this morning. We're going to look to uh, what Palm Sunday is and why we celebrate it. And it is all based off of the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem uh, on this final week of, of his life and ministry. And so if you could turn, please turn to Luke chapter 19, which is where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. We'll be looking at the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. And this is one of the uh, rare stories that is recorded by all four Gospels. And I was fascinated this week. I I love... um, studying the Gospels, because I love studying uh, the life and, and ministry of, of Christ. And, um, and each Gospel kind of gives a, a little bit fuller of, a, uh, of an account or uh, different insights into the story. But we, we'll stay mainly in Luke this morning. Um, we'll begin um, Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And Luke writes... He says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany on the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. 
Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found, so those who were sent away found it just as he had told him, told them. As, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when, he, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Please join with me in prayer. Fathers, we come before you, Lord, to study your word and the the works that you have done through your Son. Father, we rejoice in, in knowing that your word is truth. We pray, Father, for your blessing to be upon us, um, that we might have deeper insight into your word, Lord, and, and know how to apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we see that now the Lord has, has entered into Jerusalem. And just to kind of to, to give you a context of what's going on, because oftentimes it's difficult to jump right into the middle of a book and, and, and have complete understanding. Um, at this point, the Lord's public ministry is nearing its end. For three years, he had been traveling all along uh, Judea and Galilee, north and south, um, to the coast, to the east, uh, all over, preaching and teaching uh, repentance and, and preaching uh, belief in him, that he was the way to the Father. Um, he, had, he had poured his life out into the disciples. He taught the crowds through, through parables. He was always uh, in confrontation with the Pharisees. And so for three years, he, he, he had done mighty works for God, oftentimes doing miracles, walking on water, um, feeding thousands of people. And interesting, interestingly, many times, uh, either after a specific teaching or after he would heal somebody, uh, he would tell them not to tell anybody. I don't know if you, if you recall this, but he would tell them not to tell anybody. And the reason why he would do this is because the hour had not yet come. And that's what he would usually say. My hour has not yet come. Keep this to yourself. And typically the people wouldn't listen. They would run into the town and tell about all the works that Christ had done. Um, but slowly and steadily, over the course of three years, the Lord had been revealing more and more about himself and who he was and why he came and what the will of the Father was. Um, but there was still an element of, of holding back. But at this point in time in his ministry, as he enters in Jerusalem, there is no more holding back. There is no secrets about who he is and what he was there for. He comes into Jerusalem and it's, it's all out. He says, don't, don't hold back, you may praise me. And so as he, as he um, moved to Jerusalem, any, any questions about who Christ was and why he came were cleared up. And they were cleared up at this moment in the triumphal entry. Even if the people there who witnessed it didn't even understand. And so from this account of the triumphal entry, I, I, I want to give you three truths which Jesus affirmed at the triumphal entry so that you will know that salvation is through Him alone. Three truths which Jesus affirmed at the triumphal entry so that you will know that salvation is through Him alone. Who is Jesus? Somebody were to ask you at work, in your schools, at the grocery store, in the park, who is Jesus, what would you say? 
How would you explain uh, in a few sentences the life and ministry of Jesus? Right, and if you're a Christian, you should be able to do this. But oftentimes, if you think about it in your head, I know what you guys are thinking now. Oh, man, what would I say? Like, where do I start? Uh, he was the Son of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think that the, the triumphal entry is a wonderful place to see and define exactly who Christ was. And the first thing we see in this account is that He is the Savior. Christ is the Savior. At this point in time, the Passover week had come and it was the tradition of the Jews uh, to, to go to Jerusalem during this festival and feast. Um, Jews from all over Israel and oftentimes parts of the world would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate that and they, they continue to do so today. Um, and so Jesus had spent the prior week um, moving towards Jerusalem and then he, he entered into the area of Bethany. And Bethany uh, is, is a small little village located just about two miles uh, southeast of Jerusalem. So it, it's just in the vicinity. And I, I've been there. Essentially, you have the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, which is kind of on this plateau. It's on a hill. Uh, and then there's the, the Kidron Valley. And then you have the Mount of Olives. And right on the other side of the Mount of Olives, you have Bethany and Bethpage. So essentially, although he's not in Jerusalem, he's right outside it. He's very near there. And he had spent a week in this area. And uh, Bethany was the home of, of Jesus' and the disciples' close friends, Mary and Martha. And uh, so they, they would go to visit them. And it was also home to their brother, Lazarus, who just days prior to this, Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus came and he raised Lazarus from the dead and then stayed in Bethany for about a week. Uh, so because of this, it should come to no surprise to us that Jesus was very well known in this area. All right, When somebody gets raised from the dead, news travels fast, right? Right, especially in a small town. So, as we see the story unfold, when he, he goes and sends his disciples to untie this colt, and he says, if they ask, just say the Lord has need of it. When they do this, uh, it's not really a shock to us that the owner let him go, because he knew exactly who they were talking about. You know, when, I was, when I'd read the story when I was young, I always thought that was weird. Like, uh, the Lord has need of it, and the guy would be like, oh, okay. You know, I don't think that would kind of work if I went to like a car dealership nowadays and said, oh, our church needs a van. The Lord is in need of this van. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? Right? But here, um, you know, the owner of the cult most likely knew exactly who the Lord was. It was par excellence, the Lord. There was no other Lord around. It's not talking about the, the, um, just some ordinary master or some rich person in the town. Um, they certainly knew who the Lord was and so gladly allowed him to use the cult. And Jesus notes in this, that, uh, in this account that uh, the, the donkey had never been ridden before. Which is interesting. It's not really important, in a sense, that it had never been ridden before. But uh, if you think about it, it fits into the very pattern of who Christ is. Right? He was born of a woman who had never known a man before. He's now riding on a colt that had never been ridden before. And then when he dies, he's buried in a tomb that no man had ever used before. Jesus' whole life and ministry had, was, was one of holiness and, and, and different from man. He had been set apart. And so his whole life and his actions are proclaiming that uh, he's not just an ordinary man. And at this point in time, uh, the, it says that the multitudes, the multitudes are praising him. And, and this multitude was mainly made up of, of three different crowds. 
Now again, like I mentioned, keep in mind, uh, the Passover was, was a, a huge feast, and so people would come from all around to, to worship in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so one of the main crowds would have been uh, Jesus' disciples and the people who had been following him, following him from Jericho um, in towards Jerusalem. And then you also have uh, the, uh, the people who knew about who he was in Bethany and Bethpage. But in addition to that, you have all the other pilgrims who were coming from all over Israel towards Jerusalem. And as they, they would get towards Jerusalem and talk amongst people, they would hear about who this Jesus was. And many of them have probably heard of Jesus before. Many of them might have been at the, at the account where he had fed 5,000 from a few loaves and a couple of fish. Uh, certainly, uh, as we see after he had, had ra- been raised from the dead on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was asking those two people about him, they, they're like... You know, what do you mean you haven't heard of Jesus? Where have you been? Everybody knows about the accounts of Jesus. And so he was well known. And so you have, you, you have the people who knew him, who were following him. You also have these pilgrims who are traveling to Jerusalem. And then finally you have the people who are in Jerusalem themse- themselves living. And they hear that Jesus is nearby. And they hear that he's going to enter into the city. And so they come out to meet them. And so if you can kind of put yourself in, in what's going on, you have these, these huge crowds coming from different areas, from different places. And they're all praising God. And they're all worshiping Jesus. And, and to be honest with you, if there's, there's a number of very awesome things in the New Testament. But if I, if I could pick a handful to be a witness at, I think this would be probably one of them. I would love to see people from all over Israel coming to worship Christ. Saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was an intense scene of worship and wonder. And, you know, I try to put myself in in the shoes of the disciples. You can kind of imagine, this must have been unexpected to them. They must have been thrilled at this. Because this has not been the pattern of what Jesus' ministry has been like the last few years, if you can remember. As a matter of fact, the last trip to Jerusalem didn't go very well at all. And and the last few times he had encountered the Pharisees, uh, they had tried to stone him. And so a few weeks earlier, when uh, Jesus announces that he's going to go towards Jerusalem because Lazarus is sick, the disciples try to stop him. They're like, whoa, 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 Lord, I don't think you really want to go there. I mean, they were just trying to stone you. Do we really need to go there? It's just going to be a fight. They're going to reject you again. And so he's like, no, Lazarus is sick. And they're like, no, he'll get better. It'll be fine. You know, so, oh, he's just sleeping. Well, he'll wake up. It'll be fine. So finally he has to say, no, he's dead. Let me make it clear to you, he's dead. Right? So we have to go. And they understood that. And at this point in time, uh, if you remember, Thomas utters his famous line. He says, fine, let us go also that we may die with him. Right? They weren't exactly excited to go to Jerusalem. They knew it was going to be rough. And so for them to get here, experience the raising of Lazarus, and then to enter the city with everyone praising must have shocked and excited the disciples. They expected harshness, they expected possibly to die, uh, yet they come and they, they see people praising the Lord for um, what He deserved. I can just imagine their faces. Yeah, how does Jesus respond to this? Right? You see that this is a, a time of great rejoicing, that people are coming out to worship Him, the disciples must have been excited, but, but how is, what is Jesus experiencing? How is He reacting to this? Well, verse 41 tells us, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. He drew near and wept. It's quite different than what the disciples uh, were experiencing. As a matter of fact, I I think that this is probably one of the times where they were once again confused. Like, we don't get it. We finally, Lord, you're finally being praised. This should be a time of excitement. And just when they think they're tracking along, they see the Lord as he's being praised and he's weeping. He's weeping. And they must have think, why? Why is he weeping? 
Now, again, if you can think of the geography, he, he sits on the colt and he goes up the Mount of Olives. And it, it, it says Mount of Olives, but it's not really a big mountain. It's kind of like a large hill. The Garden of Gethsemane was on the back side of it. And so you know, within a couple miles, and he, and he gets up to the top of Mount of Olives, and you have a brilliant view of the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord would have looked down and saw the city. And then as he descends towards the city on the back side of the Mount of Olives, towards them, he, he looks at the city and he begins to weep. Christ's love and compassion for his people is wonderfully manifested here. And he looks and he says, Jerusalem, if you would have only known, you of all people, that this was your day, then you would have had peace. But because you didn't, it's been hidden from your eyes. And now destruction is going to come upon you. By Jesus saying this, the implication is they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know... Jesus is obviously saying that, that if you would have known, well, what do you mean? He, people are praising him. They should have known, as we'll, as we'll get into in, in the next point, that they should have known more about Christ. In fact, they should have known that this was the day for their glory because it had been told to them hundreds of years prior. Flip with me to Daniel chapter 9. chapter 9. At this point in time in, in Israel's history, um, they were being judged by God for their wickedness. They had rejected the Lord's commands. They had, they had um, sought after and worshipped the false gods of the nations. And the Lord had been patient and patient. They had had a, a string of wicked king after wicked king, uh, which we talked about the last time I preached to you. And so now, finally, God sent judgment first through Babylon and now through the Persian Empire. At this point in time, the Lord had spoken to the prophet Daniel and he was giving him uh, visions about the future things and the end times. Right? He gave him a, the famous vision of the big statue, uh, each representing a different empire. And then we have the, the famous 70 weeks vision. We'll be reading from Daniel chapter 9. And so as Daniel is receiving these visions, a lot of it he doesn't understand. And so the angel Gabriel is sent to him to give him understanding and in turn give us understanding as to what these visions mean. And beginning in uh, verse 24, 9, 24, the angel Gabriel speaks and he says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. So essentially, the, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that, um, that there's future judgment and the judgment is going to continue for Jerusalem, for the Israelites, for 70 weeks. And in, in, this can be a whole sermon in itself, understanding this prophecy, but just to kind of give you a, a quick understanding, in the vision, uh, each week equals seven years. You see, the Jews, they would organize their, their, weeks in, their years in sevens, as opposed to we organize ours in tens, we call them decades. Uh, well, they would organize their years in sevens according to the creation days. 
And then after a certain amount, after seven weeks or seven sevens, 49 years, they would have a year of jubilee. And so they were keeping track of all this. And so the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that there's going to be 70 weeks, 70 times seven. So in other words, 490 more years of, um, of judgment to their way to atone for the sins that they had done. But then he says, but after 69 weeks... That's what he says at the end. There will be 7 and 62 weeks. I don't know why he didn't just say 69, but he says 7 and 62 to make us do math. Um, So after 69 weeks, so that's 483 years, the Messiah will come. And he says it will be 69 weeks after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So after the time has come for your judgment to end where uh, a decree will go out to rebuild Jerusalem, from that time, 483 years from that time, your Messiah, the Prince, will come and He will arrive in Jerusalem. And we see from the book of Nehemiah that uh, he records that the final decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given by King Artaxerxes. And 483 years from that day, exactly, we find Christ riding in triumphantly in Jerusalem this Palm Sunday. And who was this Messiah? The word Messiah literally means anointed one. And, and the Jews know who that was because they were looking for someone to save them. This is the Messiah that was proclaimed from the beginning of creation. After the sin, the Lord says, I, you know, the seed of man will, will come and crush the head of Satan, though you will bruise his heel. The Messiah was the, the second Moses who, unlike Moses who led the people captive out of Egypt, he was going to leave his people captive out of sin. The Messiah was the suffering servant who was going to be the spotless Lamb of God because the blood of, of bulls and goats is not sufficient to atone for sin but must be a spotless, sinless man. That's who the Messiah is. He was sent to save people from his sin. And the very day that they were told that he would come, he did indeed arrive. He affirmed at his coming that he indeed was the Savior, the promised Savior. In fact, God has never hidden the fact of of who the Savior was going to be and what He was going to do. He'd always been up front. He told them that that He was going to be born of a virgin and and He was going to do mighty things. From His birth to His death, Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy concerning who He was. So that you are without excuse. There is no excuse for you to reject Christ for who He is. Many men give excuses and they want more. What more else could God do? He tells you how He's going to be born, when He's going to come, what's He going to do. And He does it step by step each time, perfectly and accurately. The world has no excuse for rejecting Christ as Savior. The problem is that people nowadays, just like the people of Israel, were blinded to Scripture. It was clear to them, but they had not studied the Scriptures and they did not know. They were being led astray by the Pharisees who typically just either uh, read from the law or just quoted each other, but they they didn't really study the Scriptures to know. There were very few who knew and understood. And this is why Jesus weeps. Because He knows that they don't understand. They don't understand at, at His true coming. This was supposed to be their day. This was supposed to be their day when their promised Messiah would enter into their midst. That they would accept Him and exalt Him as King. But they missed it. 
They missed it. And they're still waiting for Him. Even today, you go to Jerusalem and they're awaiting their Messiah. They pray to the wailing wall and they put prayers in there and they, they hope that He will coming, that they, they hope that He'll still come and they're waiting for Him. All that they would know that He has come through Jesus of Nazareth who fulfilled prophecy after prophecy who was sent to them. He was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And see, the problem is, is that oftentimes, even you as Christians make the same mistake. Even if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you don't study Scriptures to know the promises and, and, and the comforts and the truths that are found in them. Right? I mean, the, 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 the Jews in, in Jerusalem at this time, they knew the Scriptures, they knew the law, and they knew a lot of stuff, but they missed out on a lot of important things because they just they didn't read, they didn't study and search the Scriptures. How often it is when, when many Christians struggle with depression, or they struggle with lack of hope, or they don't have strength, it's, it's because they don't know the Scriptures. Let me encourage you, Christian, please, study, meditate, know God's Word in your heart. It is, he has given you everything that you need for life and godliness, Second Peter says. And if He's promised and, and He's told you about when the Savior is going to come, certainly if He's told you the, the major things, He's going to tell you the minor things. And it might not be exact to your specific situation, but the principles are there. Study and know God's Word. For in it is, is hope, truth for all that we need in life. So now some of you might be thinking, well, okay, Pastor James, I see. I kind of see, wow, that's pretty amazing, the exact very day and the promised Messiah, but weren't the people worshiping Him? I mean, they expected Him to be king. They're celebrating. So why are you saying that He missed it, and why is Jesus weeping? I don't understand. Which brings me to my second point. Not only was Jesus Savior, but Jesus is King. Jesus was King of Israel. And He is the King of kings. He is Savior and the true King of Israel, but He was not the King that the people perceived Him to be. Going back to Luke, back to Luke 19, picking up in verse 36, or backing up, and as He's he's descending up the mountain again, verse 36 says, And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The fact that they were putting their cloaks on the road before him was an ancient custom recognizing royalty and respecting royalty. In 2 Kings, we see that the people were doing this after King Jehu was anointed king. The people did the same thing. It was a tradition out of respect. And so we see here that they were respecting Christ as their king. In other accounts, it says that the people brought out palm branches and laid it before his feet, which is where we get the term Palm Sunday. And palm branches in the ancient world, especially in Israel, were a symbol of salvation. And they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is you, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the world, in the name of the Lord. And uh, Hosanna means literally save now. It's meaning save us. He's here to save us. Blessed is he who is here to save us. And they had palm branches. They were worshiping him as king. Blessed is he who, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the, of the Lord is, is a quote from Psalm 18. And it's a messianic psalm. I mean, they were attributing Christ as being king and they were attributing Him uh, messianic qualities. 
The people were proclaiming Jesus as king and the one who had come to save him. And the Pharisees understood this perfectly. The Pharisees understood this because they rejected Christ. And so when they hear the people saying this, they, they try to stop them. They're saying, Jesus, stop them from saying this. This, is, this shouldn't be right. But he doesn't stop them. Why doesn't he stop them? Because what they were saying was true. He was king and he had come to save them. He didn't rebuke them because what they were proclaiming was what he had deserved. He was the coming king and deserved the worship of the people. The problem is, is that they did not understand what he had really come to do. And what do I mean? Well, what caused the people to come out? What caused the people to come out like this and praise Christ? You ever think about that? I mean, just because they hear Christ was in the area, like I said, he had come to Jerusalem before and the people had never done this. So what was it that actually called, that caused the people to come out and cry out to Christ and worship and praise him like this? Well, we have some understanding in, in verse 37. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the mountain, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Were they praising him because they understood his teaching and knew who he was? Most likely not for most of them. Were they, were, were, they, were they praising him because they knew that he was the promised Messiah and that he was going to come and die as a sacrifice for their sins? No. No. They were praising Him and worshiping Him because of the mighty works that He had done. They had seen Him raise Lazarus from the dead. Many of them had seen Him do many other miracles, healing sick people, uh, feeding people from nothing. And so they thought, somebody who has this kind of power must be sent by God to overthrow the Roman government. He must be. I mean, this is the only reason why they would come out and openly worship him like this. After all, if you think about it, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, and King Herod were both in Jerusalem at this time. So the only reason why the people would come out and hail a brand new king is if they thought that this king was going to overthrow the current regime. That's the only reason why they were doing this. They were looking for a political ruler to save them from Rome. But this was not his purpose. This was not his purpose. He had indeed come to save them, but it was not from the oppressive rule of Rome. It was from the oppressive rule of sin in their lives. And he did not come on a glorious war horse with a, a drawn sword. He came humble and on a donkey, meek and mild. And him coming on a donkey is, is once again a, a, a fulfillment of prophecy. Both Matthew and John record this from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He'd come not to, to wage war politically, but to conquer sin. He is a conqueror. He was a conqueror. But the people completely missed it. That's why they're praising him. That's why they're hailing him. And we know the people didn't understand this. First of all, because uh, Jesus says, oh, that you would have known, the obvious implication is that they had missed it. And he's weeping after them. But the second reason we know that they missed it is because just a few short days later, these same people who were coming out saying, blessed is he, our king, Hosanna, these same people were saying, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. In less than a week, 
Because as he rode into the city, after teaching for a few days, after being arrested by the Pharisees, they started to say, you know, maybe this Jesus isn't who we thought he was. And when they saw that he was beaten before the Romans, they surely knew, now this isn't the conqueror we thought. He's deceived us. And we don't want to be punished by Rome for worshiping a new king. Yes, uh, set the, the murderer Barabbas free. Crucify him. Crucify him. He's not our king. And Jesus understood this, and this is why he weeps. Because he knew the, the destruction that would come to them for rejecting him. And it did. In AD 70, the, the whole city of Jerusalem was, was destroyed, obliterated to the ground. And the thing is, the same destruction will come to anybody who rejects Christ spiritually. The wages of sin is death. And those who have rejected Christ will be destroyed, will be punished in hell. They rejected and crucified the Lord of glory because they didn't understand. And they should have understood. And even after being called to be crucified, Jesus simply simply replied as he was on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Although they should have, they didn't know. They didn't know because the final point is Christ, through the triumphal entry, demonstrated that He is Savior. He demonstrated that He is King. And finally, He demonstrated that He is God. He is God. They didn't understand that they had, were calling for the execution of God Himself. Emmanuel, God with us. Because if they did, we see in Acts, they, they wouldn't have called Him that. They would have worshipped Him and put Him in His proper place. He entered as the promised Savior. He entered as a king from the line of David whose kingdom would have no end. And that is only possible because he was a sinless, spotless, perfect man. He was God in human flesh. Only God could be Savior. Only God is the true king, the king of kings. In verse 39, as I mentioned, as as the Pharisees were rebuking him, said, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Christ here is affirming his deity. For what man are the stones, what man are creation going to cry out in praise? There is none. There is none. However, throughout Scripture, nature, nature is seen over and over again symbolically praising God. Psalm 98.7 says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. Isaiah 55.12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And this is just to name a few. All this is in response to the presence of God Himself, the One who created all things. Creation worships and manifests and prays, uh, praises God. And here it is. This is what Jesus is saying. Is that if these people, if my disciples weren't praising me in this way, even though they're, they're a misunderstanding, the very rocks would cry out because I am worthy of this praise. I am God. And I am deserving of praise. I am deserving of glory. He came to save us when we could not save ourselves. Because we've all sinned. And we're all deserving of judgment. But it is through His life and death, as we'll come to celebrate a week from now, the resurrection, we may have life in Him. There's none. There's none who could do this. 
There's no salvation found in Muhammad, for he is dead in the grave. There's no salvation found in Buddha or any other religious leaders, because they are dead in their sin. Yet Christ is alive even today. Glory be to his name. So this is why we celebrate Palm Sunday, church. Because we celebrate that finally the Lord had manifested and affirmed who He was. And so those who knew Him, the people in the crowd, the few who were His true disciples, who knew who He was, rejoice. And they were praising Him in a worthy way. He was the Savior. He was the King. He is God. And so we rejoice and we celebrate in Palm Sunday because uh, of the revealing of His glory. And as He, not on a war horse but on a donkey, came to Jerusalem to willfully give His life, He knew what he was doing. As he went into the city, he wasn't taking the throne. He knew that he would be raised on a cross and killed. But he did it willfully for us, for you, for those who would believe in him. And for those who reject, there's destruction. So as I close, what does this practically mean to us? A lot of times we we understand a history and and we understand uh, the context of things, but it's it's oftentimes... uh, uh, difficult to, to get a practical understanding of what this means. And I, I want to give you three, three practical things from these principles. The first is this. Since Jesus is Savior, you owe Him your gratitude. You owe Him your gratitude. How often is it that you live amongst your life and, 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 and reaping the benefits of, of your hope and life that Christ has given you, but you forget to just be grateful to God? How often is it that when you go before God in prayer that you're just simply asking for things? Right? It makes me think of somebody who, who has squandered their life savings and has gotten into uh, a debt so much so that everything that they own is going to be taken from them and they're going to be punished and put in jail for what they have done. And then someone steps in and pays their debt and gives them a newness in life. If somebody did this for you, how would you live according to them? How would you treat them? You know, would you think, wow, wow, this guy's pretty rich. Um... Excuse me, sir, could you... Uh, I need a new car. Could you give me some money as well for a new car? And uh, you know what? My, my kids need to go to college, so uh, since you've kind of bailed me out before, could you just maybe give me some more money for my, my, my kids' college fund? And we ask things, and we ask things over and over and over. And you know what? That's okay, because God has told us to ask things from Him. But because He's Savior, live in a sense of gratitude for all that He has given us. Because you have not deserved any of it. And yet he continues to give and give and give. Because he is Savior, you owe him your gratitude. Number two, since he is king, you owe him your allegiance and your obedience. Since he is king, you owe him your allegiance and obedience. His word is true. His commands are law. They are not up for debate. They are not up for, well, that was, that was kind of the culture today. He didn't really mean... Do not commit adultery, did he? He didn't really mean don't steal. He didn't really mean that. That was just for that context of the day. And, you know, God doesn't mind. He's been a generous God. You know, the Puritan writer Thomas Watson said when he, says, when you, as a Christian, sin, you're presuming upon God's grace. As if he's just going to forgive you. Not understanding that you are, you're sinning right in his face. 1 John 5.9 says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Yet there are so many today who call on Christ as their king, yet live and act and do whatever is right in their own eyes. Christ is king and you are his slaves. 
Yet though you are his slaves, he has made you sons and daughters in his kingdom. And even more than that, he has made you ambassadors for him here on earth. So that all the world sees you, and, and when they see you, they see the king. You represent him here on earth. So obey his commands. He is your king. Right? For in what kingdom, what king, if a, if a king commands a servant to do something, and then finds out that he's not doing it, he's just say, ah, oh, don't worry about it. I'll try your best next time. No, in most cultures and, and, and societies where there's a kingdom like that, the servant's just put to death. Okay, fine, you're dead. Yeah. We, we serve a gracious God who is quite patient with us. Because He is your King, you owe Him your allegiance. And don't worry about those who reject Him. As His ambassadors plead with them to join the kingdom. Because He will deal with them. The first time he came into Jerusalem, he came mounted on a donkey and humble. But the next time he comes, he will be on a war horse. And he will have a sword drawn. And the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Which side are you going to be on? And finally, since he is God, you owe him your worship. Since he is God, you owe him your worship and your praise. Not out of compulsion as the false religions do. Not out of fear as if you don't worship Him, bad things are going to happen to you. But out of love and gratitude. Being obedient and living in a life of gratitude is a form of worship. But we do it freely because we love Him. The God who gave us life. The God who created all things. And His character is manifested in each one of us. He's taken us from death and given us life and given us a new nature. Praise and worship Him and live for Him because He is worthy. Remember these truths that Christ affirmed this on this Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. And let these truths resonate in your mind this week, the Passion Week, as we remember uh, the pain and suffering that our God, our King, and our Savior endured on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we come before You. Um, humbly and with grateful hearts, recognizing who you are. Lord, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, although there are many who don't understand, Lord, we understand who you are. And we know that for those who believe in you, we will rejoice around your throne and worship you you as the true king, the spiritual conqueror of our souls. We pray, Lord, that as we go forth this week, Lord, that the the world would see a difference in us, that through our lives, through our words, and through our actions, Lord, we will proclaim your holy word, that we might bring you much glory, for you are worthy of that. In Jesus' name, amen.